our first Tis the Season study, we constructed a literal and historical understanding of the Christmas story. In our second study, we established the overarching significance, doctrinally, of the incarnation of Jesus. And last Sunday, we examined the personal impact the birth of Jesus had on the main characters of Christmas. We looked at Mary and Joseph. This morning, we're going to turn our attention off of the main characters of Christmas and instead look at the supporting cast of that first Christmas. We're going to start this morning by looking at the shepherds. Tomorrow night for our Christmas Eve service, we're going to look at the wise men and the, sh- and the uh, Jewish scribes and that of Herod. Let's begin looking at the shepherds. If you join me, Luke chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place with Canarius governing Syria. So all were to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now while they were in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of, of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. And so it was when the angels had gone away from these shepherds into heaven that they looked and they said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, They made widely known the saying, which was told them concerning the child. And all who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told to them. Let's start this morning by kind of establishing a scene of activity. Let's set some context to our story. As we discussed last Sunday, Mary and Joseph have both accepted the personal impact the birth of Jesus would have on their lives. Both Mary and Joseph have demonstrated an amazing faith. They heard God's word. They accepted God's word. They believed in God's word. They then acted upon God's word, trusting God with the new direction their lives would inevitably take. In spite of the obvious questions and disbelief of his loved ones, Matthew chapter 1 verse 24 tells us that Joseph 
did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and he took to himself Mary, his wife, but he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. Mary, we're told, spent the first three months of her pregnancy with Elizabeth, her cousin, who was also a child. We can presume that for the next five to, let's say, six months or so, give or take, of the pregnancy, that Mary and Joseph lived together in Nazareth under the cloud of scandal. Luke tells us that Mary is in her full term when the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, because Mary and Joseph are both direct descendants of King David. We established this last Sunday. They would both be required to make the long journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, the city of David, to be registered. As a people under Roman control, for the Jews living in Galilee, understand the order to be registered was not optional. It wasn't a suggestion. Even a doctor's note would not get Mary and Joseph out of this painstaking, awkward journey. The inconvenient timing of the decree for Mary and Joseph is obvious. Joseph, he loads up his extremely pregnant wife. Nine months, she's pregnant. And they're going to now make a hundred-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now keep in mind, the journey itself it would be difficult for just the normal person, yet alone someone that's nine months pregnant. Now, most of us hear this and we immediately sympathize with what Mary went through. Oh, poor lady. So pregnant with child? It's not as though they're catching a plane flight. It's not as though they're loading up into the, uh, the car. I mean, this is on foot. Maybe donkey. Awkward. But you know what? Forget Mary for a moment. Last Christmas, I dealt with a full-term, extremely pregnant woman. Poor Joseph. Can you imagine what Joseph had to go through? First convincing Mary that this was a necessity, that it was unavoidable. And then the constant kind-hearted words. I'm sure that we're coming from Mary the entire journey as they're making their way from Nazareth to Beth. Poor Joseph. My heart goes out to Joseph. Now, though Bethlehem was due south of Nazareth, there wasn't really a good route to take. To get from Nazareth to Bethlehem, you would have to start by traveling east through the Valley of the Doves to the Sea of Galilee. Then you would journey south along the Jordan River Valley before then ascending west up through the mountainous regions of Judea to Bethlehem. It was such a wacky, convoluted navigation that you would have thought they had gotten their directions from Apple Maps. As brutal. You see, I'm a homer, but I can understand Apple Maps stunk. Thank goodness Google Maps is back to my iPhone. Now, as brutal as it might have been, Mary and Joseph, they complete the two-week or so journey. However, upon arriving to Bethlehem, things go from bad 
to worse. I can see Mary, her entire journey, she's just waiting to get there. She's imagining the bubble bath. She's imagining being able to kick back, set up her feet. She's imagining everything but what they ended up with. Bethlehem is so overcrowded that they have to set up shop in a stable, which, mind you, was not a wooden shed set upon a Thomas Kincaid-like picturesque hillside. The stable was more than likely a cave tucked into the hillside. Here they are in a damp, dark, cold cave with whatever animals happen to be there and whatever animals typically leave behind, this is the scene of Jesus' birth. I can see Joseph's trepidation when his wife's water unexpectedly breaks. I mean, it was bad enough making the journey. It was bad enough having to set up shop in a stable. It's horrible when Mary's water breaks because there's Joseph He's going to have to play the role of doctor and nurse. And mind you, Joseph was neither. Not only that, he's never had a child. Once again, my heart goes out to Joseph because last Christmas, I experienced the exact same dynamic poor Joseph faced. Upon the birth, I told the doc, I said, I have one plan, one goal, one ambition for Quincy's birth, and that is not to need medical attention myself. Because after seeing what begins to happen during a pregnancy, I got ashen, a little woozy, and had to divert sole attention to that monitor, monitoring the contractions. My job was to let Jess know when the contraction was coming, and she yelled at me every time, like, duh, I know when the contraction's coming, shut up, honey. Poor Joseph, I understand this. Now, it's humble. I mean, the whole scene, the whole setting, everything happening, it is humble. The scene of Jesus' birth is also, though, awesome, especially when you contrast it with its incredible significance. A breathtaking event in such an unassuming setting. What a modest beginning for the King of Kings. Now, one would have thought that such a monumental event in the history of humanity would have demanded a little more detail from Luke than what we're given. All Luke says of what happens is that Mary brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. This is all we're given of this incredible event. Instead of taking a few verses, at least, or maybe a chapter to elaborate on the details of the manger scene, Luke does something atypical. He immediately shifts the story in the most unlikely of directions. He tells us, now there were in the same country. Right then, when you're wanting more, when your lips are wet, when you're just excited about what's happening, you're there, you're wanting more detail, more information. Jesus is here. He immediately shifts to shepherds in the same country, living out in the fields, watching over their flock by night. 
Please realize, from a literary perspective, Luke's approach to storytelling is absolutely bizarre and for the most part, completely unconventional. There's a term I wanna introduce you to. The term is called scene shifting. Scene shifting is a common literary technique which allows an author, a playwright, or a director to move from one scene to another with seamless continuity. Though in many instances, scene shifting is not all that complicated. When dealing with an important event, an important moment in the narration of your story, scene shifting can be a delicate tightrope. For example, if you were to shift prematurely away from an important scene, you can diminish the importance and the power of the moment. However, if you linger on a scene for too long, well, what happens? The story can stagnate, losing its potency, the potency of the moment, or the effectiveness of what you're trying to communicate anyway. Scene shifting, as far as storytelling goes, is a very balancing act. Now, in chapter 2, Luke has brought us all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. He's placed us in the stable to witness the maturation of the virgin birth. The scene is awesome. It, 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 it demands all wonder. Jesus has been born. The very moment the entire Old Testament has been building towards finally takes place. The incarnation God becoming man, the savior of the world entering the fray of humanity, mission impossible, has commenced. But instead of spending what I would consider enough time on the event itself to allow his readers the chance to soak up the significance of this moment, what does Luke do? He immediately shifts his scene to shepherds living out in the fields. The intent or intention of this strange, almost out-of-place scene shift, it demands our consideration. Why would Luke, and let's just say the Holy Spirit, who's inspiring the story itself, why would the Holy Spirit, God, transition so quickly from the awesomeness of the stable manger with baby Jesus to the solitude of a field outside Bethlehem full of shepherds. In many ways, our 21st century church culture has so sterilized the shepherds that it has created an inaccurate portrayal or mental image in our minds. I'm going to assume that if most moms knew who the shepherds really were, they wouldn't be very excited if their son volunteered to be a shepherd in the Christmas nativity. Shepherds were not upstanding moral citizens we've made them out to be. Shepherds, in context to first century, occupied the lowest rung of society. I ran across one author who described shepherds as land pirates. Personally, in my mind, I think of these shepherds in this field keeping watch over their flocks. I think of them as carnies. Do you know who a carny is, right? 
According to Urban Dictionary, which I like to reference most phrases, a carny is a good-for-nothing, unreliable, foul-smelling vagrant who works at a carnival, cheating children on fair games. If your child told you they wanted to run away and join the circus, smile and chuckle at the innocence, you know, of the request. However, if your teenager told you they were going to drop out of school, forget college, run away, and become a carny, I would suggest you drug test them immediately. Carnies, not upstanding moral citizens, but like carnies, no mother in their right mind would have ever dreamed or desired or purposed their son or daughter become a shepherd. Shepherds were the outcasts of society. They were known as drunkards and addicts. They were vagabonds, incubators of STDs, pickpockets. They were dropouts, bums, and deviants. When the shepherds came to town, People cleared the streets and locked their doors. What's weird about our story is that Luke not only leaves the glorious scene of the manger, but he shifts his attention to a group of shepherds looking after their flocks by night, who by this hour are sitting around a fire already half past hammered. Can you imagine the shepherd's reaction when an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. I can imagine some of them think that, that they're encountering a UFO. Like, all right, this happened to me once before. Here we go. Like, I can imagine their scene, like their minds, what's happening in their brains, that they're rubbing the sleep out of their eyes. They're not sure if it's real or if their rum has been laced with something fishy. These guys were greatly afraid. We know the scene is hectic because the first words out of the angel's mouth, it dispels their obvious fear. The angel says, do not be afraid. Well, he wouldn't say that if they were all calm. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. As the scene unfolds, it's obvious. I mean, it becomes obvious why Luke shifts the scene from the stable to the shepherds. The shepherds? Well, they are the first people that God hand-selects to bring into the loop. They're the first people God hand-selects to proclaim or to announce the news that Jesus had been born. And though this makes complete sense, it does leave you with a follow-up question. Knowing what we know about the shepherds, why would they, of all people God could have included, of all people God could have chosen to receive the news, why were the shepherds the first to hear 
that a Savior had been born for mankind. I mean, if I were God, and it's, by the way, a good thing that I'm not, I would be a a miserable God. But if I were God, hypothetically, I would have probably sent my advance team somewhere other than an empty field on the outskirts of Bethlehem. The temple there in Jerusalem, that might have been a good place. The Colosseum in Rome. Even just picking a place that had people would have been better than an empty field with a handful of shepherds. If I were God, I would have definitely had my marketing department target someone other than a group of carnies. The religious leaders of the day, that would have been a good start. Maybe the political establishment, even popular socialites, would have made more sense than the shepherds. Especially if I'm inviting them to come, if they can bring some paparazzi, a few cameras that can make the front page, that would be a good thing. And yet, God, he does neither. But nothing is accidental. In many ways, Luke's scene shift is brilliant. Because of the imagery, it serves to provoke. And shifting away from the glory of the manger to a dark field full of shepherds, Luke provides a stark contrast between the majesty of God and the sad plight of humanity. And in doing so, Luke perfectly illustrates for us the ultimate mission and purpose of Jesus. A dark field and a group of obvious deviants, it presented a perfect picture of the world and outlook of humanity before the incarnation. The world had been darkened by sin and rebellion against God. To make matters worse, the night sky had grown further darkened by God's 400 years of silence leading up to this point. Though the shepherds were the chief sinners of society, understand, everyone was lost in their trespasses. It is with this backdrop, it's with this scene, that an angel breaks through the darkness, bringing, well, the best news that had ever been brought in history. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Undoubtedly, Jesus came with the mission, with the purpose to shine a bright light into the darkness. Jesus came to save those who were lost, to redeem the sinner, to reach the outcast and the downtrodden. Can you, with that, in, that context established, could you think of a better place to start than with this dark field and this handful of shepherds? I can't. As with our main characters, God purposely chose to include these shepherds into the story of his son for a reason. A night that began for these men, like every other night, would be radically interrupted by the revelation that God wanted to involve himself in their lives. I don't know about you, but I find this to have incredible ramifications for my life. If God would go out of his way to involve himself and the lives of these shepherds, if God would go out of his way to involve himself or to invite these deviants to be a part of his son's glorious story, 
at the carnies can be included. And guess what that means for me? I am not beyond God's reach. There's hope for you and I. I know that this has been a reoccurring theme of late here at Calvary 316, but I want you to remember that God does not care who you were. He also doesn't care who you are. God is only interested in who you can become following an encounter with his son, Jesus. This morning, if you find yourself feeling unworthy, I don't know where you've come from or what you've done, but if you've bought into the lie that whatever you've done or whatever you're currently or presently up to places you beyond the reach of God, you're poorly mistaken. Right from the beginning, our number one of Jesus' existence, of his life, we see that he came to shine in the darkness and involve himself in the lives of sinners. I also want to point out this morning something in the initial announcement the angel made to the shepherds that's often overlooked. As a matter of fact, I found very few scholars that even mentioned, I think, something interesting here. The angel, let's read it again. The angel appears to the shepherds, and note what the angel says. The angel says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then the angel continues to say, And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now please note, for a moment here, the logical progression within the angel's pronouncement. First, what do we see? We initially see that his pronouncement began with a statement of fact. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There is. This was a claim of absolute truth. The reality of the claim itself, of what the angel was pronouncing, the event of Jesus' birth, this was not debatable. It wasn't up for discussion. It wasn't up for question. Really, the shepherds had a decision. They either accepted it or they rejected it. But their opinion, their perspective, had no bearing on it being truth. It happened. There is born to you this day. Reject it or accept it, but it happened. The second progression here that I think is important, after placing a statement of fact, there was then an invitation to authenticate. The angel says, and this will be the sign to you. It's almost as though the angel is saying, though the birth of Jesus is a fact, there is born to you this day, you don't have to take my word for it. As a matter of fact, I just want to invite you to go and look for yourself. That's what the angel's saying. The angel even goes one step further by challenging these shepherds to search for a particular sign. Literally, the sign, it means a point of authentication. For what purpose? Well, to validate the claim and dispel any doubt. So there is born to you. You can reject it or accept it. It's truth. There is born. Jesus. But now I'm going to invite you to then go and search for yourself. Authenticate it. But then finally, 
there was a promise. You will find a babe. The English phrase, you will find, is actually one Greek word that literally means you will find out for yourself. The angel's promising here that if these shepherds would accept the invitation to go out and seek proof for themselves, what would happen? They would discover the claim was indeed authentic. This is the progression. There is born, statement of fact. This will be the sign, an invitation to go out and authenticate, and you will find a babe, a promise that if you do take this step of faith to authenticate the claim, well, you will find it's just as it was communicated. Now, in 10 years of ministry, I have found that there are always two kinds of skeptics, the genuine and the disingenuous. Sadly, for the disingenuous skeptic, because there lacks an honest quest or desire for truth, there's little that can be done in way of intellectual reasoning, whether apathetic or simply ambivalent. The disingenuous skeptic, he desires nothing more than a deeper validation of his or her's own preconceived ideas. But what's interesting is that the genuine skeptic is in a much more promising position since, well, I think you can characterize them as a genuine seeker of truth. Before we continue, I want you to think, are you a genuine seeker or a disingenuous one? Because the genuine seeker has a deep longing to make sense of the world around them. They understand, I, I, don't, I haven't figured it all out. I don't know I can't reason, I'm not sure whether they're an agnostic or not. They want to make sense of the world, but they just have questions. They're searching for truth and they're open to truth even if it defies their preconceived notions. Now, I don't want to go on a tangent here, but I do want to make a point. I don't want to miss an opportunity. I'm convinced the church has tragically erred in stigmatizing the genuine seeker as someone we should write off because they simply lack the faith to believe. There are disingenuous seekers that just want to argue for the sake of arguing. And we shouldn't waste our time. But for the person that is a skeptic but genuinely wants to know the truth, the church, the church rides them off. Well, you should just believe. Or that just indicates you don't have enough faith. Well, wait a second, I have questions that I want answered. You just need more faith. We, we take, I think, a faulty approach. Instead of answering the skeptic's honest questions, we tend to ostracize the questioner. Is there really any surprise the church, by and large, is failing to reach a postmodern generation who questions just not religious claims, but all traditional modern concepts. The issue, in my estimation, really boils down to a fundamental misunderstanding of unbelief versus skepticism. Unbelief, you should note, well, it's a sin in the Bible, but unbelief is a rejection of what you know to be true. You have knowledge, 
but you lack the faith to act upon it. It's unbelief. But skepticism, it's different. Or as the Bible sometimes references as doubt. Doubt, skepticism is an honest admission that I just don't have enough evidence to be certain. And this is what I love about God. As we see with the shepherds, it's okay to have questions. God, check it out. God always presents truth. Not as some cumbersome pill he forces you to swallow, but rather as something he invites people to authenticate. I'm of the opinion that God loves the genuine skeptic. And this is why. Because an honest quest for truth will inevitably result in its discovery. Go, seek, seek to authenticate. There's a sign unto you, the babe. And then guess what? You will find. God becoming man is a huge concept to accept. A baby resting in a manger who would grow up to be the savior of all mankind, well, that's a tough pill to swallow. But as he did with the shepherds, God isn't asking you to simply take his word for it. He's not asking for blind faith, and he's not even discouraging honest doubt or skepticism. But rather, God is inviting the skeptic to undertake a quest, to embark on a journey to authenticate a claim. He invites men and women to go see for themselves. Jesus would provide a similar invitation in Luke chapter 11, verse 9, when he challenges us to ask, and it will be given. To seek, and what? You will find, to knock, and it will be opened. Charles Swindoll once said, it is the right of every believer to go through the halls of doubt on their way to the rooms of truth. The angel disappears. The shepherds, somewhat awestruck by what they've just witnessed, they're looking around at one another. And they reach a very simple conclusion. Let's go. Um, let's go look. I mean, what do we have to lose? Let's see. Truthfully, their logic is nothing more than a very simple cost-benefit evaluation. We didn't really have anything planned anyway. The sheep aren't going anywhere. Well, we might as well venture out. It's a stable. There's a babe. This will be a sign. I mean, how many babies are being born in stables right now? This won't take long. What do we have to lose? They respond to the invitation. And what happens? They end up finding themselves right in the middle of the divine story of Christ's birth the first to arrive. Understand that Jesus is inviting you to do the same thing this morning. And the same result, if you would simply take a step of faith to authenticate, is also equally there for you as well. Now let's wrap up part one of our study of the supporting cast of Christmas by detailing the reaction we see here of these shepherds to the call that God gave them. We read, so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, well, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see the thing that's come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. Understand first, the shepherds, they took a reasonable step of faith. Reasonable faith. 
after recognizing the significance of what happened. I mean, it's not every day. An angel, right, breaks through the darkness and stands right in front of you and the glory of the Lord shines around you only to be later joined by a posse of other angels that are breaking into song and making this incredible declaration that the most significant event in human history is happening. I mean, this doesn't happen often. And so they're amazed, they're wowed, they're soaking it in. And then they make a resolute determination, well, to go see. They act upon God's word. A challenge had been issued by the angel, go and see. They conclude that after what they just witnessed, a step of faith was the only logical and reasonable response. I hope your faith isn't blind, but I hope your faith is based in reason. In Hebrews, we're told that faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things unseen. Understand two key components to faith is evidence and substance. Those two things should exist in your faith. Then we're told that they came with haste. And what? They found the babe lying in a manger. Secondly, they acted on very limited revelation. Though we can conclude these shepherds were not, well, good Jewish boys who would have kept themselves in school, they don't know the scripture very well. They have a very limited biblical understanding, but equipped with what they knew, limited knowledge, that a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes was lying in a manger somewhere in Bethlehem. These men showed tenacity by acting upon what they knew. They didn't know much. There's a babe in swaddling clothes and a manger somewhere in Bethlehem, but let's go. Never forget, God is not looking for you to have all the answers to every question. He's just simply asking you to act upon what you know in simple faith. Start small. Third, we see that there was urgency in their search. The phrase, they came with haste, it denotes eager intentness. These shepherds were intent. They had a purpose to see if what the angel said was true. They didn't want to miss the moment because they procrastinated or needed a couple cups of coffee to shake the hangover. They acted. They didn't wait. The author of Hebrews also says that today is the day of salvation. Don't forget, one of the characteristics of the disingenuous skeptic is ambivalence. A genuine skeptic has such an honest, deep longing to know the truth that when a clue arises, they're quick to jump on it. Luke continues by saying, Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning the child. The fourth thing we can note is that they believed. The word Luke uses for they had seen him communicates more than just like, I saw him. The verse should be better translated, now when they perceived who he was. It went beyond just a physical affirmation that a baby was there. It was the acknowledgement and the acceptance that the babe that was there was actually God. These men urgently acted on faith with limited revelation. They entered the stable and not only saw Jesus, but they recognized him for who he was. They accepted that that was the Son of God. The fifth thing that we note is they witnessed. Now, by witnessing the newborn babe and all they had seen, understand, the shepherds automatically 
became witnesses. It wasn't something difficult. It wasn't something mysterious. It was actually just a natural byproduct of what would ha- what happened. They witnessed an event and thus, well, became witnesses. Luke tells us the shepherds, they left the stable, they entered into Bethlehem, and they told anyone who would listen what God had just done in their lives. It really is awesome. Now, how many people listened or accepted, we don't know. They were shepherds. People are thinking that they are off their rocker, but they acted. They told people about the angel's pronouncement, how they had acted upon the invitation to search to see if it was true. And then they say what they found at the end of their quest. Look, you can include yourself as well in the story of Jesus, just like I've done. This is what I love about the shepherds. Very limited biblical understanding, very small faith, but they were equipped with a story, their testimony. How many times do we see in scripture that we're just simply asked to tell our story? As a witness, witnessing became a natural manifestation of their encounter with Jesus. What should witnessing look like in your life? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean you answer everyone's question or you go into some great theological uh, debate. You can simply sit down and just share your story of what God has revealed to you and done in and through you. Finally, they returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. The sixth thing we can point out is that they returned to their environment. After all this took place, they returned. It was the first thing they did. After witnessing, they returned where? the same dark field in Bethlehem they had always lived. Though these men had encountered Jesus, please recognize their environment didn't change. Same field, same equipment, same stables, same sheep. And yet, though Jesus might not have changed their environment, I think it's safe to say he had changed their lives. God God never saves us to remove us from our environment, but he saves us so that we can return to our environment with what purpose? To shine a light in the darkness. Finally, what do we see with the shepherds? Well, they worshiped. After an encounter with Jesus, Luke describes these two reactions. They get back to the field, they return And we're told that they glorified and they were praising God about the things they had heard and seen. I'm sure these guys had sang a few songs out in the fields. Most of the time, it was probably after one or two more beers. They had burst into song, had a merry old time. Can you imagine the song that they were singing? The worship service breaking out into this dark field? The sheep are looking at each other like, what in the world has just happened to these shepherds? I love the fact that we're told there are two reactions. First, they glorified God. The word used here denotes, it describes their attitude before God. To glorify literally means to honor, to extol, to magnify, or to celebrate. They were literally imparting glory to God. But we were also told that they were praising God. The word used here describes their actions before God. 
They glorify God, that's their attitude. They praise God, well, that's their act. They were literally singing praises in honor of God. In many ways, our worship should have the same two components, an attitude and an act. An attitude of honoring God and exalting God that manifests itself into praises that rise before God. That first Christmas, it presents an incredible scene. And shifting the scene from the glory of the manger to a dark field full of shepherds, we find a perfect picture of Jesus' mission. The majesty of God came and it entered the sad plight of humanity. Jesus came to enter the fray, to enter your fray, to include himself in the lives of shepherds, but also to include himself in your life so that you can be a part of his majestic story. Tomorrow night, we will continue our examination of the supporting cast by looking at the wise men and King Herod. But I hope this morning in examining the shepherds, hey, it doesn't matter what you've done or what you're doing or what you have planned. God never runs from us. We run from God. But sometimes there's a moment when he breaks through the darkness and he shines his glory around us and he presents an invitation to accept Jesus. This morning, don't leave without chewing on that nugget of truth. God doesn't ask you to swallow the pill blindly. He asks you to authenticate, to step out and to search, to embark on a journey. Don't be disingenuous. Be genuine. So, Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word.